Hey, everybody. Welcome to, what is this? What session is this? 44. 44, oh my gosh. That's amazing. Session number 44 of our COVID weekly gathering. <laughs> yeah, starting it up on a year on a year. So thanks everybody for joining us. What we do here, if you're new, is I usually don't say a ton. That's why I like them. I show up. Um, it's mostly Q&A, discussion, offerings, that sort of thing. Um, I will say a few comments about one topic. I usually have one or two things to say. But in the, in the you know, spirit of updating what's happening, it's kind of a busy time with us here at uh, so-called Team Nightclub. <laughs> things are cooking. Um, we started this new meditation study group. We met last night just because only I'm on the road. It's usually Monday night. So that will kick back in on, on Monday. There will be a replay of that and then a little kind of synopsis of what we covered. Book study groups still going on on Tuesday. We know we got this going on on Thursday. Um, next, you know, releasing podcasts with all kinds of cool people. But the one thing I did want to uh, say a little bit about, and this is actually going to be a little bit of my topic, is next weekend, uh, next, not this Friday, but next Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm doing the second in a series of uh, programs with um, Professor Bob Thurman, who's a pretty cool guy, pretty big voice in American Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and this one is on, a, it's a first of two three-day weekends. So one next weekend, the one um, a month from them on Sutra and Tantra, Pure Land. And I wanna say a little bit about that. I, I actually, I was looking at my calendar. I haven't presented this material in 14 years. Um, so it's, it's been fun for me to go back and reread stuff and read new, new material. And so I wanted to share just a little bit about why this material actually is so interesting and um, perhaps why it may be of interest to you. I started diving into it pretty deep maybe 16 years ago when I interviewed or had an interview with one of my main teachers um, back then, uh, Trunga Rinpoche, amazing teacher, some of you may know him. <clears throat> um, and I asked him a couple of questions. I said, you know, what, what in your estimation, Rinpoche, because he's obviously a master teacher. I said, what do you think is, you know, in relation to like preparing for death? What do you think is a topic that should be really presented in the West that isn't really being presented? And I was a little bit surprised when, when he said, pure lands. And I was like, what? The Tibetans never talk about pure lands. So like, that was amazing. And then later in the conversation, I asked him a similar question, I, you know, because I was, that's when I was writing my book. And so I said, Rinpoche, you know, if, if, if a person realized they only had like a year left to live, you know, they had some like terminal diagnosis, what, what meditation should they emphasize? What should they really focus on? And again, he said, pure lands. And I was like, what? So th that was like, oh my gosh. Um, so I, I started to dive into it in a big way, read a ton as I'm prone to do. And I have to say, the more I jumped into it, the more taken I was by how profound these teachings are and how much is actually there. <clears throat> um, and so I want to share just a little bit about all the things that kind of circumambulate this topic. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the Bardo teachings, short of attaining full-blown awakening um, in, in the Bardos, which is obviously not such an easy thing to do, the single best thing you can do like if you become lucid to connect this to lucid dreaming, if, if you have a lucid dying experience, the single best thing you can do after you die is, is actually um, move your, transfer your consciousness and take rebirth into a pure land. Um, so this is deeply connected to barter yoga. It's deeply connected to POA, um, ejection of consciousness. It's also deeply connected to what's called dream yoga POA, which is where you can use actually lucidity in lucid dreams as a practice of POA. Um, and, and so it has just tremendous application to those topics. It's also core to a very deep look at this thing that is so flippantly tossed about, which is merit. I mean, we all, especially in the Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist arena, we always talk about dedication of merit. And most of us, you know, pay lip service to it, right? It's like, oh yeah, merit, whatever. Let's get it over with. Get onto the real guts here. But merit is, is an extremely subtle, sophisticated topic. It's actually merit that created 
the, uh, the Pure Lands and it's merit that will get us to the Pure Lands. So a really deep dive, in fact, I'm gonna paint to, to Bob, we're talking about what topics to cover and I, I'm gonna suggest to him that we both should talk about merit because it's just, it's not discussed enough and it's a really big, big deal. Um, also around this is the role of faith and devotion. And so conversely doubt, where does doubt come into play? Because um, most people in the West, and sometimes it doesn't help when, when teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, I hate to say it, says things, oh, you know, the Buddhism is, uh, Pure Land Buddhism is for beginners. It's kind of like Buddhism light. I, I, I actually have to say with all due respect to him, I, I, I really don't agree with that. Um, and this is why you have to kind of centrifuge out uh, kind of Sutra uh, Pure Land from Tantra Pure Land. Tantra Pure Land is actually really profound, really, really deep, but you can't really talk about that before you talk about the Sutra thing. So that's what we talk about during this first weekend gig. How was it created? What exactly is a Pure Land? How many different types of Pure Lands are there? Um, the relationship of Shambhala. Uh, Shambhala is a Pure Land. What kind of a Pure Land is it? It's connected to uh, what are called the Hidden Lands or what's called Bayol. You could be in one of these right now and not even know it. Um, so it's deeply connected to that. It's also connected to the Tuku phenomena, um, reincarnation, rebirth. I mean, it's just, there's so many different topics that come to bear around this. Um, the role of Amitabha, you know, he's one of the great, what are called um, meditation Buddhas, Jnana Buddhas. And in many ways, he's the, he's the patron Buddha of, of this realm of the realm of desire. That's what we live in. So that's the other thing that's talked about here that's really cool is this is the, the body of teachings where cosmology is really unpacked. You know, the 27 different states of samsaric existence, all the different realms outside of samsara, because what we're talking about is like, okay, like what is this pure land? Where is it? How do I get to it? How does it fit in? How is it different from heaven? How is Amitabha different from God? Um, and so these are all the things that are really explored here. And for us, Amitabha is a big deal. You know, I mean, he is kind of the, the triad of his manifestations. You know, Amitabha is a Dharmakaya, but uh, his emanation is Avalokiteshvara Chenrezi. He's a Sambhogakaya Bodhisattva. And then from that emanates all these amazing Nirmanakayas, including Padmasambhava, the Karmapas, the Dalai Lamas, Tara. I mean, just this incredible cascade of realized beings that all kind of are in line with the Buddha of limitless light. That's what Amitabha means. And Amitayas, a Buddha of limitless life. And so also connected to this is a really deep topic, uh, the role of light, Buddha of infinite light. What does that really mean? And um, you know, a more sophisticated look at what I playfully refer to as spiritual photosynthesis, right? How it is that we're fundamentally um, made of light and then that Pure Land teachings are a type of solar theology. Uh, and so all these kind of topics um, really are, are core to this, this fundamental teaching. <clears throat> so also there's an entire classification of liturgies in Tibetan Buddhism um, called Daemon, um, there's at least 50 aspirational prayers. And, and we're, I'm probably going to be using the one that I've used before by Karma Chagme Rinpoche. I met him, I met his, his emanation, his reincarnation some 12 years ago in actually in Kathmandu. I had an interview with him and I talked to him about this sort of stuff. <clears throat> so we're going to use a very famous liturgy from Karma Chagme Rinpoche. And then a sleep meditation that's connected. I, I do this every single night. I've done it for maybe 15 years, even before I started studying the Pure Land teachings. There was a, a kind of a Pure Land sleep meditation. I do this every single night, bar none. So we'll be introducing that. Um, and then just a ton of stuff. All the different Tibetan masters who endorse it, um, Tsongkhapa, Odolpopa, um, I mean, so many. Um, and in one in particular, I wanted to close and then we can open it up for Q&A discussion is, some of you may know Machik Labdram. She's uh, one of the most famous masters, female masters in Buddhism, big hitter, big hitter, um, founder of the Chid tradition. Um, and so the reason I, I'm gonna, I wanna share a little bit from her because most um, 
of the Tibetan practitioners that I talk to, they look a little askance at the whole Pure Land thing, um, thinking, oh, geez, you know, what value is this? But, you know, there's in, in one account, one scholar estimates that uh, 13%, he's, <laughs> somebody did the research, 13% of all the Buddhist teachings were devoted to the Pure Lands. And so there's a reason for that. Like, why is that there? Um, and so we talk a little bit about that. But I wanted to share with you just a, a very short thing from Machik Labdram that she writes, and then we can open this up for a Q&A discussion around this or anything else. A couple of questions came in, so I'll address those, and then we just open the floor. So this is an excerpt from quite a, a longer piece I'm going to read next weekend, but here's just a little bit. Through the power of Buddha Amitabha's prayers, birth and Sukhavati, so that's his pure land, Sukhavati, the, or Dewa Chen in Tibetan, land of bliss. Um, in contradiction, and this is my term, we don't live in Sukhavati, we live in Dukhavati, where Dukkha is the word for suffering. So this is my, my playful term, not the great land of bliss, the great land of non-bliss, the great land of suffering. That's where we are, Dukhavati. Through the, through the power of Buddha Amitabha's prayers, birth and Sukhavati has been guaranteed by the Buddha Amitabha himself. And we talk a little bit exactly about that. Like, how does that happen? How can, how can this, this um, you know, uh, archetypal Buddha, how can he actually guarantee our transfer into his pure realm? Well, because it has to do with, with transfer of merit. You know, merit, as we'll talk about, is like is like cosmic spiritual currency, and um, merit can actually be transferred. So when we do things like dedication of merit, we usually think, oh yeah, like whatever. Well, there's real spiritual energy actually being communicated, and so one of the reasons Amitabha can guarantee rebirth into his pure land if you believe in it, and that's the kicker, is because of the capacity to actually transfer this type of spiritual energy. That's what merit's about. For which reason you must by, by all means, you must strive at prayer for rebirth and Sukhavati. Without doubt, suspicion, laziness, or irresolution, and by means of certainty and with ardent exertion, you must pray while recollecting the array of the Sukhavati field and its qualities. Because even common ordinary persons who are burdened with the afflictions may be born in Sukhavati, it is exceptional. So this is a really cool thing about it. There are countless Buddha fields, but what makes the cavity so unique is it has the easiest visa requirements. <laughs> Anybody can go there. Every other <clears throat> Buddha field, you have to have at least what's called the first Bumi or if not the eighth Bumi. That's pretty elevated visa requirement. That's hard. But Sukhavati is unique <clears throat> because it has by far the easiest um, access. Back to Machik Labdram. Having been born there, all your wishes will be realized just as soon as you conceive them, and you will not be tainted by the merest obscuration or affliction. Moreover, because you are permitted to journey to whichever among the Buddha fields you wish, it is exceptional. And it is exceptional because Buddhahood is swifter than in the other fields. And so this is kind of cool. It's like the, it's like the marketing thing, you know, location, 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 right? <laughs> it's everything. So the Pure Lands are all about location, location, location. It's like being in a neighborhood. I, I've reflected a lot on this, actually. It's like being in a, in a neighborhood, in this case, an entire realm, but it's like being in a neighborhood where everybody is, is, is a realized being. Like everybody in the neighborhood is a tuku or a bodhisattva or a Buddha, right? So the developmental center of gravity is so high. You know, it's just like, it can't help but kind of magnetize and pull you up. Big problem in the, in the dark age is the center of gravity, of course, is so low and everybody, the peer pressure gets sucked down. So the so-called peer pressure, quote unquote, in the pure land is, is phenomenally powerful. I mean, imagine living where everything is about the Dharma. Every person lives, breathes, teaches the Dharma. I mean, it's just like, it's like, I mean, going to Harvard, mixing metaphor. It's just like you couldn't ask for a more conducive environment. So this is why you want to go there. And then people often say, well, geez, you know, if I, if I make aspirations to go there, what does that do to my bodhisattva vow? Am I not supposed to like not leave and come, you know, 
Am I not supposed to come back? Blah, blah, blah. Well, again, you want to go there because you can develop so much more rapidly. You can attain, um, it's not equivalent to awakening. It's not equivalent to Buddhahood. But on one level, it kind of sort of is a little bit because it's your last life before attaining Buddhahood. In other words, once you're in, it's non-retrogressive. You never fall back. You never fall back. And so that's why you want to go there. And then once you're there, um, again, psycho-spiritual development is really rapid. You develop all these really cool powers. <laughs> I'll be talking more about what those are later as well. And then you have the ability to help people like through dreams, through images, through all kinds of things. Um, so it gets pretty magical. This is one, among the most magical kind of otherworldly teachings in all of Buddhism. Um, and it has a tremendous capacity to, to expand your horizon of what's actually possible. Certainly did that for me. Okay, back to her. But his Buddhahood is swifter than in, in the other fields because there is nowhere another field that is closer to being attained than Sukhavati. In other words, it's the easiest to get to, which is endowed with the aforementioned and other qualities beyond all conception. It is exceedingly important that you strive in prayer for birth in Sukhavati. When I first read this stuff, it was like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, here's Machik Labdram, like one of the most Tibetan of all the Tibetans, doing this amazing endorsement of the pure realms. Um, and so in Tibetan Buddhism, even though there is, isn't a strong, there isn't a, a kind of a pure land sect per se, there's actually quite a powerful pure land orientation. And this is what I'm sure Bob and I, I'm sure I'm, I'm going to be talking about it. I'm quite sure Bob's going to be talking about it as well. So more, maybe a little bit more about that next week, but that's my kind of intro riff for today. Um, I think, Andy, we had a couple of questions that were piped in, and then we open it up for you guys. Yep. Um, you want me to read the chat questions? Yes, because I don't have my other computer here. Okay. This is from Cassandra. Two questions. First one. Tergar instructor Cortland Dahl briefly mentions body practices used in the completion stage of Vajrayana practice in an introductory lecture. With these, the practitioner can attune to and cut through the energy currents that correspond to dysfunctional, mental, emotional, and behavioral patterns, clearing the debris that obscure recognition of one's true nature. He seems to say that these practices are as effective as the nature of mind approaches, such as Dzogchen and Mahamudra. Have you ever used any of these body approaches? And could you share your knowledge and opinion of them? Sure, I have opinions about everything, right? <laughs> First of all, Court is a, is a dear friend. He's amazing. Court Lindahl is an amazing individual. I have tremendous respect for him. So yeah, so um, spot on with what he said. Uh, you know, there are two, uh, Cassandra, as you probably know, there are two kind of overarching paths of the Vajrayana uh, in, in relation to the kind of nature of mind thing that you're talking about. So this is a little bit more insider talk. So directed specifically to this question. There's the path of liberation, which is more Mahamudra Dzogchen. That's kind of what you're referring to. And then what Court's talking about is, is called the path of liberation. Um, I'm sorry, the path of um, method, the path of method. And technically, again, um, there are other classifications. These, these uh, uh, path of method inner yoga practices are also called completion stage practices with characteristics. That's another term. Or if you want another classification of it, it's called profound generation stage practice or unprofound completion stage practice. And they're incredibly powerful. Um, I have worked with them extensively, especially in the last year, my three-year retreat. I mean, almost the entire year. So I've, I've literally spent years in retreat doing these. Um, they're exceedingly powerful. They work the path of liberation and the path of method. Um, basically in modern language, they work with this bidirectionality thing that that path of liberation is more mind work so when we think of meditation like Mahamudra Dzogchen that's you know you're working with your mind well mind and body again they're not separate right so even though you may not be directly working with your body you are indirectly working with it you know what you do with your mind affects your subtle body so what the path of method does is it engages bidirectionality the other way works with subtle body 
to invoke changes in mind. And, and that's one of the main kind of characteristics of Tantra Vajrayana altogether. It, um, you could say it redeems matter in the sense that um, body is as important as mind in Vajrayana. And so these path of uh, method transform transformations are exceedingly powerful. They're sometimes called wrathful methods of liberation or forceful methods of liberation. And this is where they get a little dicey that you have to be prepared for these practices because they're, um, you know, Mipam Rinpoche talks about them. You're, you're, you're going to the very roots of, of the samsaric um, construct at the, at the way samsara is generated at the subtle body level. And so what you're doing is you're literally untying, this is what Cord is talking about, these knots, these samskaras, you're going after those very directly with physical movements, um, sometimes quite rigorous, you know, semi-wrathful physical movements to literally break loose these, these energetic cysts and, and so the admonition here, that's why these practices are a bit advanced. Um, you know, anything that has a kind of thermonuclear power to cure has the shadow side. It, it can cause um, some it, real issues if you're not prepared. So there has to be some stability here because otherwise, you know, when you break, literally forcefully break loose these energetic cysts, these samskaras, these knots, I mean, all hell breaks loose because that's where hell is trapped. It's trapped in your subtle body. Same thing, by the way, that happens in the bardo when, when all those knots come undone through the process of death. That's what makes the bardo so challenging. All hell breaks loose in the bardo because that stuff comes up. Here it comes up on, on this level, level of practice. And so there has to be some level of stability. Otherwise, you can run a pretty serious risk. There are only two or three practices that are really prescription strength where you have to be um, really supervised, really careful. They really require proper instruction, proper motivation, proper implementation. Otherwise you can get burned. You can get in trouble with these. Um, the winds enter in the wrong place. You get these what are called soklung disorders, wind disorders. These are non-trivial. And, and I know people, I, I, you know, I know people who have gotten really kind of wigged out when they try too hard or whatever the winds move in the wrong place, you can get in trouble. Um, six yogas of Naropa are primary practices of the Kagyu tradition that work with path of method. And of those, the main beam, of course, is Tumo, Chandali, the heat practice. That, that's where it burns up, releases all this energy. So maybe enough on that. Um, super powerful, super profound, but you gotta be super careful. Um, you gotta be prepared. You got to do it by the book. You got to have instruction. You got to have pure motivation. And if you do it, they're among the most transformative practices in the industry. <laughs> People talk, when I interviewed Sharon Salzberg, you know, her, her little bio caught me off, a little bit off guard, you know, where, where it says she's an industry leader. And I, I, I say, wow, I guess, I guess meditation is big business now. The big, you know, you, you get where I'm coming from, right? The, said with tremendous uh, affection for her. I love her, just tongue in cheek. But these are among the most um, transformative practices in the business and the industry, so to speak. And so they're there, but you gotta be careful. So unless there's a follow-up on that, this is a colossal topic. I might let, let that one go for now. Big deal stuff, really cool. Or I should say really hot, so. This is uh, the second part of her question. Oh. So you alluded to turbocharged tantric practices in the book club uh, that can catapult the practitioner into the quote, dimensionless dimensioned end quote of one's true nature. Could you say more about this? I think I just did. I don't remember where, when, you know, I don't remember that context. So I'm pretty sure it was probably about this. There's again, there's only two or three others that are like this um, that have this kind of power. So my guess is I was probably referring to this path of method stuff. Um, I, I just don't remember uh, saying I'm saying that in what the actual context was. So unless you can jog my memory a little bit more, probably refer to what I just talked about. Best I can do with that one. All right, I'll read this chat question from Jolene and then we'll go to some of the live questions. 
I recently listened to an interview that Sam Harris had with Ian McGilchrist, who oh, you've yeah. cool. who you've mentioned before and who wrote The Master of the Emissary. I was intrigued by the roles that the different hemispheres have in our understanding of the world. It occurred to me that left hemisphere dominance or lack of right hemisphere participation may be responsible for the conspiracy thinking that is so prevalent in much of the Republican Party these days. Also that CPTSD and other forms of trauma may shut down the right hemisphere and cause distorted and delusional thinking by the dominant left hemisphere. Knowing this has allowed me to feel a bit of compassion towards conspiracy thinkers. Can you comment on this? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, Ian McGilchrist is amazing. That book, um, The Master and His Emissary, um, what is it, what's the subtitle? Uh, something about the, you know, the, the, the hemispheres and the, and the creation of the Western world. It, it's a fantastic book. It's a tour de force masterpiece. I think it took Ian like a decade to write this thing. It's a great book. Um, and Sam Harris is amazing. I mean, he, he's a controversial character, but he's also really bright. Um, I, ha I haven't heard that one. I have to check that out. I actually heard him recently um, do a, uh, I listen to his stuff every now and again. He did quite an interesting one with Rupert Spira, which was actually quite okay. So I'll have to check it out. But yeah, I, it, you know, that is, this is another really great topic. Um, what to say? Yeah, you know, the master and his emissary. So this is what basically happens with the colonization of the less left hemisphere, you know, logical, rational, um, it, it kind of just goes into runaway, colonizes, dominates right hemisphere. So we're, we're way too much left brain oriented. Reggie Ray um, riffs on this a ton. His work is really good on it. To me, um, Ian's is the kind of Bible, but the other one, the other one I, I reference a lot is um, um, My Stroke of Insight, that book by the neuroanatomist Jill Bolte-Taylor. What she writes, and this is what I'll speak a little bit about, <clears throat> is that you know she's, she had a, a massive left hemispheric stroke that basically shut down her entire left hemisphere. And you have to read this book or listen to her YouTube or her uh, TED talk. I think it's like one of the top five most popular TED talks ever. It's an amazing book. And it's, it's really revelatory because here's, here's a neuroanatomist, neuroscientist, having a massive left hemispheric stroke. And, and so she's relating to it from, from both a scientific and first person approach. Like, hey, this is happening to me. And it's incredibly interesting because she, she absolutely positively, as her left hemisphere went basically dead offline, she had experiences that when you read it, I mean, were utterly completely spiritual. You know, loss of boundaries, fusion with the external world, everything that you would hear from people having these, you know, truly utterly spiritual experiences. But what's incredibly important here is that, and this is in many ways the take home of that book for me, that definitely ties into Ian's book, is that even though she had this unbelievable kind of spiritual experience, she couldn't function. So that, that doesn't mean like the left hemisphere is the bad boy. No, no, it's just the left hemisphere is, is excessive it's it's gone into runaway you know that's that's what colonizes and basically stomps the right hemisphere and so the issue isn't one of like you know flatlining the left hemisphere the issue is one of balance because even though she had this amazing you know truly life transforming spiritual experience when her left hemisphere shut down that's the neurological correlate right that's the part of the brain that supports seeing the world in this reified, dualistic, egoic way. Um, but, you know, as she um, and other writers since then have pointed out, she couldn't function. I mean, she was basically a, a kind of a, you can't say spiritual basket case because it wasn't all spiritual, right? But she couldn't do anything. And so, so the issue is not so much, you know, getting rid of the left hemisphere, obviously. Um, it's just putting it in harmony with the right you know, male, female, whatever, um, making it more in balance and in harmony. So I find these things really interesting. They're, they're again, in this, in this kind of genre of what's called neurophenomenology, right? That there are 
brain and neurological signatures correlates to certain states of mind. And um, interestingly enough, this also ties into lucid dreaming because you know mostly in, in lucid dreams, left hemisphere is, is dramatically reduced, right hemisphere kind of takes over, which is one reason parenthetically it's harder to read in a dream because you know that that capacity comes mostly from the left side. So um, I mean that's an amazing book. Ian's book is a real tour de force, masterpiece text. Um, if you can get through it, it's not an easy read. It's big, it's long, it's incredibly well researched, but it's a kind of a masterpiece and it, it's caused quite a bit of a stir over the last, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, 10 years since it's been published. So I'm not sure where else I can run with it. I honestly, I for most people listening, I would probably recommend Jill's tale, uh, Jill Bolte-Taylor's book first. It's a lot easier to read. Plus it's a riveting story. Um, and then for deeper divers, Ian's book is without peer, in my opinion. So unless there's something else on that, Jolene, that's kind of what comes to mind. It's really cool stuff. But here's what happens, you know, at the deepest levels, right, just briefly, is at a certain point, you know, mind is no longer contingent, dependent on brain, period, at all. So um, that's the other thing that maybe we're throwing into the mix, that there are dimensions this ties in a little bit to the earlier question about subtle body stuff. There are dimensions of, of experience awareness that are not contingent on brain at all, left or right. Um, and so I think that's worth throwing into the mix, at least from an Eastern perspective, you know, obviously not from a Western scientific perspective, but unless you have something else to say about that, Jolene, that's kind of where I'll let that one run. Okay. All right, all right. So live, live questions. Are Bring in Glenn, then Barry and Rana. Hi, um, Andrew. I've been watching on Netflix uh, the six-part series uh, "Surviving Death," That's and I'm about two thirds of the way through. And I realized after watching the first one and then heading into the second that. So let me just give you my impression, and I'm interested in your comments. So in, by the second show, the, the operative question the series is asking is I think wrong because what's happening, uh, so the first one is a depiction of really interesting near-death experiences, uh, first person, and they're all based on first person accounts. So they, uh, to me, they're quite understandable. And then in, in the ones involving mediumship, physical, mental, and then signs that deaf people or dead people are giving back to their lovers. It seems to me that the issue is healing of the living person, mm -hmm. but it's pursued as if, is this a verification that indeed there is life beyond death and that the, the person who dies remains and is alive in your thing, but it doesn't ask the question, who, you know, it's trying to reify that there's a God based on reifying that there's an other. And, it, and the whole notion of non-duality never crops into this discussion. So I've, I just found it an interesting series to watch for the various ways they talk about different types of mediumships and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, and then I'm wondering if you'll also comment on um, the use of oracles by the Dalai Lama. I've seen a couple of documentaries on the three or four uh, there, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, the nature and oracle thing. So yeah, I, I watched the first one which I thought was quite compelling. I watched the, I think the fifth one on rebirth reincarnation. I found that compelling. I started the second one on the, the medium thing. I got a little bored with it. Um, I found it a little bit amateurish, a little bit. I mean, like you said, it just, it was interesting, but it wasn't exactly like um, turning any new stones over for me. I mean, honestly, I, I, I like what they're doing all together, Glenn, because they're at least, you know, <laughs> putting out into the, to the domain, the possibility of, of life beyond body, beyond brain, especially the, the thing on um, re rebirth, reincarnation. I mean, the stuff, the work of Ian Stevenson and you know, the, all these others from University of Virginia, I don't see how you can, you can explain this any other way. You know, I mean, it, it, it's actually more outrageous to come up with explanatory theories than to just admit the, te you know, the tenability of having rebirth. So I find that really interesting. I think what Ian did along that lines is really interesting. I completely agree with you. They don't touch on the non-duality thing at all. I'm a little surprised they didn't do anything on the kind of the Tuku thing. Um, so I found it pretty limited after a while, 
but I also found, you know, I thought the first one was, like you said, these people are really genuine. These NDEs experience, you know, experiences, they're pretty compelling to listen to. So I think, the, you know, the great benefit, like I said, is just people ask questions when they see this and they start looking, they start expanding for probably, you know, probable non-materialistic approaches to death. And I think that's the great contribution of it. But outside of that, it's, it's somewhat limited. You know, along those lines, I'm, I read something in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, this billionaire um, actually has a little competition now. His wife died suddenly, I don't know, I can't know, not, maybe not suddenly, his wife died of cancer and, and he was just absolutely devastated. And so now he's on this real passion to prove, you know, prove life after death. And so he actually, he's offering like a $500,000 prize for the winner of this competition. And he mentions the, the gal who, whose book was the C for this Netflix series. Um, and, and so on one level, I, I mean, that, all that kind of stuff is good because it, it, it starts to shake up this reductionistic, physicalistic approach, this materialistic approach to life and death. And so I think that's what I take out of it. You know, it, it's part of the, um, I sometimes use this phrase, you know, what Republicans have tried to do with Obamacare, you know, repeal and replace. Well, it doesn't certainly replace, but it helps repeal. Um, and so anything that helps repeal the materialistic, physicalist, reductionist, you know, mind is brain, you're dead, that's it. I think that's really helpful. And so in that regard, I applaud it. Some of the other stuff, I, you know, I'm agnostic. It's interesting that if I don't find it terribly convincing. Um, some of it, you know, from my understanding doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I thought what you were saying earlier that makes sense to me, that the kind of healing that's taking place, that really could be the essence of a lot of what takes place with these mediums. But again, I reserve too much kind of opinion or judgment on that um, because you know there's, there's room for a lot of different views in this arena. In terms of the, uh, the Dalai Lama and the Nechum Oracle, this stuff is super interesting. I've been to his temples both in, in Tibet there's entire uh, temples devoted to the Nechung Oracle. I've, I've seen the, also in India. Um, and if you watch these videos, they're really haunting, right? I mean, if you've seen them, you've probably seen that one in particular. It's really powerful where the Dalai Lama, right? He's sitting on the throne in the background, like just doing nothing. But just his, just his presence there empowers the whole scene. So he's sitting there, not saying a word. And then below him is this amazing thing, right? This monk comes in, who's just like a, like ordinary Joe Schmo monk. And then he goes into this amazing kind of trance thing. And then this, the Oracle comes down, takes possession of him. He wears this colossal hundred pound headdress, you know, completely transfigures. And then um, he starts, you know, the scribes are there. You've seen it, right? The scribes are there. The nature Oracle starts riffing away and the scribes are there all writing it down. And you know, this stuff, um, this is pretty commonplace in, in any shamanic tradition, um, commonplace, if not a little esoteric in Tibetan Buddhism, but this stuff has been around for thousands of years. And I have no problem with this whatsoever, because again, it, it, it just, the, the reason we find it incredulous or even unbelieving is because we have these centric and, and supremacist ways, these kind of ontological supremacist ways that the only way you can know reality is through the brain and mind in the waking state. The only reality is this. I mean, like, give me a break. It's just ridiculous. I mean, we're, we're surrounded by NHIs, non-human intelligences, and, and we have the capacity. In fact, somewhat connected to the Pure Land thing, you know, that's what can happen from, from Pure Land activity. I mean, you, these in, incredible beings can kind of transmit down um, metaphorically, and then be of, of tremendous benefit. So it completely fits into my worldview, as unbelievable as it may seem. But again, it's only unbelievable if you put all your ontological eggs in the materialistic basket. But if you expand your horizons and you start to realize, you know, the world is made of heart, mind, spirit. It's not made of matter. And there's these NHIs, they're absolutely everywhere. Um, these are just the Neqing Oracle and others are just individuals who have the capacity to open their awareness, um, kind of in a certain way, get out of the way. And, you know, I guess you could use the word possession in the West, you know, kind of come through and then they channel this, this information that is profoundly beneficial. You know, the Dalai Lama is not doing this for 
social purposes, right? He's doing this for, for tremendously applicable, helpful insights into both his, his uh, kind of domain of experience and others. Um, so yeah, I, I find those accounts I've seen them, they're incredibly compelling to me. Um, and so unless you have something else to say with that, that's kind of what comes to mind. Two comments. Uh, in a couple of the documentaries, they say one, the lifespan of the Oracle uh, is generally short and that once identified, the Oracle undergoes special training. Special what? Special training. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, again, I, I have no doubt. It's probably, I mean, I don't know about that kind of training, but it's probably like what shamans go through. You know, again, this stuff is so common. And, you know, 90% of the world's traditions really look at, at, at the world in a, a multiphasic, polyphasic way. It's only the Eurocentricity. The, you know, my friend Alan Wallace goes ballistic on this. It's a kind of white supremacy, Eurocentricity that, oh, you know, we've got the goods. We in the West, we know more than all these slanty, again, we know more about the reality than these Asians. I mean, give me a break. It's so arrogant. So I, 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 yeah, they probably go through some specific type of training. I have no idea what that's about, but um, you know, once you raise your gaze and look at things more deeply, it's just like, this is just part of the magic of reality. You know, it's not this ridiculous shrink wrapped physical thing. I mean, that, I find that's it's what Ken Wilber talks about. It's flatland. You know, everything is just reduced to dirt. Uh, it just makes no sense to me. <laughs> So anyway, yeah. Was there anything else there? You good? Okay, thanks, Lynn. Next, we'll bring in Barry, then Rana. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Barry. I don't know if you can see my. I can. That's that's the man. That's the Amitabha, and that, I have a tanka very similar to that. That's Sukhavati. Very cool. My wife said that's my passport, and <laughs> that I should be looking at that fifteen minutes a day. Good. And, um, yep. It's. So again, you're actually validating all this stuff. Well, look, Barry, not just, let me just say something. That's actually spot on, my friend. Um, and it's not just you, it's your pets. If you, have, if you have your pets, your animals, they should be looking at it. You should be reciting Amitabha's Pure Land Mantra to your animals um, because that, you know, that will actually plant a seed in their, in their bakchak, you know, into their unconscious mind. So not only looking at stuff like that, reciting the mantra around um, other um, animals, sentient life force and whatnot. So your, your wife is spot on, my friend. You should yeah, listen. She, she plays uh, that song outside for the, for the animals. So that for the, uh, the squirrels and the birds and everything, she'll actually play it out there so that uh, they would, would move on. That's so, fantastic. Love it. Yeah, so I was gonna ask about that, but there was another thing, a second thing that Glenn talked about. My wife is also in touch with oracles. And we actually had an Oracle call last night who's in, in training in Bhutan, a seven-year retreat. And um, it, it's just something that she actually, at, at sometimes she, she gets possessed, you know, like uh, she'll shake. And, and she's told me that if she ever gets in that position to touch her and ask her a question because uh, she'll be able to, uh, to, to answer any question. Uh, and uh, she's had some contact with, with Oracles and, and some training but um, it, it was just interesting that, that uh, Glenn brought that up because it, yeah. it is something that is, is it, it took me a long time to actually incorporate that in my own Western view. But uh, the more you talk about it, the more I, I feel better about it. Yeah, so, you're, not, you're, not, you're not as crazy. Yeah, uh, totally, totally. Thanks for sharing those stories. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank so, you. Yeah, you should um, listen to her as, as, as of course you do. I'm teasing you when I say that because I know how much you admire what she does and her, her wisdom. But yeah, I mean, absolutely spot on. And that I have one very similar to that. That tongue is just beautiful. Yeah. I put a photo of that in the chat in case anybody wants to see what that looks like if they wanted to get a copy, if they yeah. wanted to get that, that one. Yeah, in fact, one of the, there are three main... Um, sutras associated with uh, Sukhavati, what's called the longer Sukhavati Sutra, the short Sukhavati Sutra, and the Meditation Sutra. And the Meditation Sutra is largely a series of uh, 16 visualization contemplations, literally about the landscape, the topography of Sukhavati. It's one of the four classic, in the Tibetan arena, there are four principal ways to get to Sukhavati. 
Um, and one of those is in fact, um, contemplating what it's like to be there, literally, you know, imagistically, you know, the mountains are like this and the rivers are like that. And, you know, and so these tankas were, were, were drawn with these um, liturgies in mind. In fact, I actually created Barry about 15 years ago when I first started teaching this stuff. I created a video with a film, film guy where I had him go around the tanka, very similar to this, and then just kind of focus in on all the little you know, details there. And as he was doing that, I was actually reading the verses from the Meditation Sutra, which are about that, because that's one of the ways to um, stamp your passport, so to speak. Wow. So, that's awesome, man. Very okay, cool. I'm, I'm packing now. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Beautiful. Thank you, man. Uh, next, we'll bring in Rana, and then there's a few more chat questions. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Boy, I want to acknowledge that I'm intimidated, but not knowing enough. And yet I have a question. Okay. And the question is, I have been naive, completely naive in my life. I started, you know, in uh, Shambhala and very soon I was... Uh, affected by the creating enlightened society. So I went to Iran and I started meditation group. And, and the situation in Iran is quite obvious to many at least. So now I am in the point, it's still going on. And I wonder about merit you were talking about. And I don't know what I've done, actually. I, I'm clear about my intention, but I don't know. I'm doubting that there is any merit. Maybe, you know, I'm questioning yeah. whatever I've done, you know. And also, I want to acknowledge that uh, being an artist and make art out of dead bodies, not not literally, but making it in a way people feel like this is a dead body of the bird or dead body of someone burned themselves. And so I go to places I don't even know. So this not knowing, I have a passport for places that I don't have any idea where I'm going, you know? So for that, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if I'm hurting, if I'm not actually benefiting, what's going on? I mean, <laughs> it's too late to go back, but still I, you know. Anyway. But why, why, do you, why, why do you even feel that there might be some harm or hurting? What, I'm, I'm curious what creates that, that even that sense that what you're doing may be hurting? Because things that it comes and and uh, smash my ego, like you know, the pain of going through the meat grinding machine of of the spiritual path. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, again, you know, these teachings are hazardous to your egoic health. So when you're talking about harm, that's what's not clear to me. Are you talking about harm towards yourself or harm to others? Um, what can you say more about that, or both, or both, both? Yeah. Well, well, you know, I mean, tricky to say, right? I I don't know you well enough. You don't look like the person who's you know ridden with intentions that are that are malicious somehow. Um, again, you brought up so many different things. I'm not quite sure where, what you want me to focus on. The, the, the issue on merit, um, this is a, a very subtle, deep topic that what came to mind when you were again saying this, and I don't know if this is what you're kind of pointing towards, is that, that this kind of spiritual power <clears throat> from merit, dedication of merit and all that, um, 
it has an effect whether we know it or not. It, it has more effect if we believe it. So one of the things that you're, that you're kind of circumambulating here also is the issue of doubt. Um, and so, as you know, both in Shambhala teachings and absolutely in the Pure Land, in fact, I think it's the second sutra uh, of the three Sukhavati sutras is entirely devoted to this issue of doubt because this stuff sounds, it's just so unbelievable. It's, you're, you know, especially Western minds, just they're infected with doubt. So doubt is a colossal issue around this. Um, you know, it's a little bit like, um, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it is actually replaced by I'll see it when I believe it. Um, and so doubt is incredibly important. Marriage is, um, critical to the entire affair. And again, I'm trying to just track into some of the many things you were talking about. And then you can just, I'll pause for a second. You can tell me what you want me to focus on. One of the things that comes to mind based on what you were saying is that when we dedicate our merit, if we do it with a proper intention, if we do it with, with as much belief and conviction as we can, it has actually tremendous power. Um, but it's not in our place to sit back and look for those results. It's like they say in the Lojong slogans, remember? Slogans, uh, don't expect applause. You, you simply do this sort of stuff because it's the right thing to do. You don't do it um, expecting something in return. So um, if you're a member of Nightclub, listen to the interview that we did, that I did with David Loy. At the very end of this wonderful conversation with David, we talk a little bit about this in terms of the ecological crisis. You know, how, how am, am, is what I'm doing of any benefit and any effect? And, and David says on one level, it doesn't matter. Um, and then he talks about that with real elegance. The other thing, again, you mentioned this artist thing and where you go. Um, you know, that's part of what the artist does. The, the true artist has this kind of transparency, the porosity, permeability, where, where they can go to vast, wondrous dimensions for, for insight, for inspiration that, um, that are not too dissimilar from the arenas that even shamans can go to. I mean, artists on one level are, are kinds of artistic shamans, you know, they're, they're bringing back. So I'm, I'm shooting all over the place here a little bit because I, I'm not entirely sure what you're what you're asking or going for, so I'm going to pause and maybe you can direct me a little bit. It's just not entirely clear what the, the main issue is for you. Or... Yes, I apologize to you. Oh, no. Right, I'm because I don't know. You see, I jumped 2004. I jumped with complete naivety. I just. So when you say, you say so, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you a little bit. So when you say you jump, that means you jumped into the Kamala thing, or what do you mean jump? Well, I I went back to Iran and I started a group, you okay. know, in, in an environment that that I couldn't even say I am a Buddhist, and my friends were executed. You know, it was I did some. You know, I know that. In my heart, I was resonating with creating an enlightened society. Still, it's very alive in me. But now, after so many years, I'm thinking, who the heck did you know? Do you think you are? You what? What load I took? You know, I. Well, so the, let me say, let me ask you that. So when you say the load you took, that means this kind of load that you want to, that you somehow feel um, instrumental or um, part of the Enlightened Society construction project. Is that the load that you're talking about? Is that what you're referring to? And is that the naivete that somehow you would have the ability to actually work in creating something like that? Is that yes. what you're talking Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I bowed to Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. I never met him in person, but in my dreams, he's very alive. And, and then I, I followed his footsteps, you know, now I realize that I didn't know when I did it, you so know, you, you saying, something you, to a new culture. So are you saying in that line that you're also regretting that or that's not clear to me either? You're just not no, sure. I don't regret, but I don't know where going forward, going backward, going left, going right, going top, bottom. Well, you always go Plus. forward, right? I mean, that's the great Eastern sign, right? So you always walk forward. 
maintain that vision. And then in terms of the aspiration for creating enlightened society, you know, there's something to be said for the bumper sticker, think global, but act local. So creating enlightened society starts with creating an enlightened society, even within your own mind, within your own immediate environment, within your household, within your family. That's, that's a microcosm of, of enlightened society. So that's where you start. You start with the society of your own mind, the society of your immediate environment. You work to create that enlightened society. And then with that as, as a very workable, tenable platform, then that, you know, to greater or lesser degrees, depending on the individual, will expand into maybe creating a meditation group like you're doing or whatever. And so it's not naive. You know, we, we do these things because the, on one level, fundamentally, there's no other honest game in town. This is the only thing that really matters. And, and we do so with tremendous sense of humility and service and without expecting any type of recognition. Um, you know, most of the great beings are actually completely, utterly anonymous. People engaging in, in incredibly selfless service, creating enlightened societies literally is, is simple as offering a smile to someone, offering kindness to another person. That's a, a momentary generation of enlightened society. And so to me, that's the way I work with it, that, um, you know, think global, but act local. Um, you, you just work with your immediate persona, your immediate being, your immediate network with whatever is around you with no sense of, of wanting applause, no sense of needing feedback, no sense of recognition. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. And you just- Who, who knows it's the right thing to do? That's the issue. I don't want recognition or whatever. Actually, I'm sure anybody in any kind of this approach what they get is actually resentment. They don't get any, and you know, I don't see that. But anyways, I appreciate your response. It's, uh, I have to go through something which I don't know what it is, but, uh, but I'm in it. We all have to go through something that we don't know what it is. And we, again, you know, the vision of the great Eastern sun, you just keep walking forward towards the, you know, the great Eastern sun, which is always ahead of you. And you do it informed with the purest motivation that you can find. And, and this is something that actually can become a practice. I mean, I, I work this again, very immediately, very practically before I say or do anything, almost like a mantra, preemptive mantra, you might actually, as a practice, say, you know, why, why am I doing this? What is my motivation? That in itself is very, it's revelatory because it, you know, it'll, it will often reveal, geez, you know, that is about me. That is somewhat self-centric. That is about, oh, Lord, geez, busted. It's about me. But, you know, eventually you start to clean that up a little bit. And then you realize, you know, I'm actually saying I'm doing, I'm creating my art for others. I'm speaking to benefit others. I'm acting in this world to benefit others. And, you know, eventually it's a fake it till you make a thing. You just continue to do that becomes more and more natural. And then, you know, you, you just find yourself more and more aligned with that um, kind of deeper resonance with reality and truth. So, you know, continue to study the work of the Vijadra. You know, Trungpa Rinpoche was a genius. Yes. Shambhala teachings are unparalleled. You know, despite all the silliness that happened, his, his transmission of that tarama is unbelievably powerful and it's completely applicable. So just continue studying, reinforcing that. Don't worry about some of the distortions. Unfortunately, that happened recently. You know, the heart of what he brought across it all is really just incredibly brilliant. Um, and so, you know, something like that, just be true to yourself, check your motivations using that mantra, you know, like, why am I really doing this? I do it all the time. Why do I say this? Why do I do that? If it's, if it's self-referential, don't do it. If it's for the benefit of others, just like you know the Nike thing, just do it. Don't think about it, just do it. And then don't worry about you know, um, applause, just without sense of feedback recognition. You simply do it because it's the right thing to do. Okay, <laughs> thanks. I know we're at the hour mark, but uh, there's a few more chat questions. I'll take two more and then, then we can close it up for today. I have to run a little bit early. Okay, from Peter. From a Buddhist point of view, does believing something make it so? So is the verb to believe have a more active or passive nature? 
Uh, is there a verb form that is neither active nor passive, but something else? No, a belief doesn't make it so. Um, I mean, again, it depends on what level, level of literacy, literality you're talking about. In other words, uh, you know, I can believe that um, when I step out of this airplane, I'm not going to fall, right? I'm not going to, I'm going to fly. Well, um, doesn't matter what you believe. Gravity is going to throw you to the ground. Um, so I doubt that's what you're talking about. Um, belief at a more personal individual level um, obviously has a tremendous amount of power, like I was alluding to earlier. So um, in that regard, what you're suggesting points a little bit more towards um, in fact, what the pure lands are about, you know, like I mentioned, the, the, I'll, I'll, I'll see it when I believe it. So it's not complete that belief can create reality um, at every level, one extreme level being the physicality, um, you know, the other uh, completely applicable level would be, you know, the, the solipsistic thing that um, what you believe within the context of your own mind actually becomes that reality. But if I'm understanding what you're saying, belief, faith, devotion, uh, obviously has tremendous effect, um, but it's, it has to be tempered. Um, so I don't mean to be contradicting what I might have said earlier. And this is why it's always a little tricky when I get these questions in written form and I don't have the opportunity to dialogue. If you're on and can come on and can tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking, maybe I can be a little bit more specific. Um, belief has tremendous application, especially in the Pure Land arena, but it's not absolute. So unless there's something else you wanna you know, supplement or challenge or come in with, I'm not quite sure where to run with that one. Okay, this is from uh, Cece. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning that merit creates the pure lands. What does, what do you mean by that? Who's merit? Yeah, well, this is obviously a huge topic. So very briefly, in, in a, a long, you know, it's like a, like a, like a campfire story in a, in a place far, far away, long, long ago, in a previous cycle, uh, a kalpa, a Buddha, Pre, a pre-Buddha, actually a monk by the name of Dharmakara, which his name literally means um, field of, of merit. Um, he went through uh, a tremendous set of um, inspirations and made a set of uh, incredibly famous now vows um, and some of these vows were all about um, creating this particular domain. They were all of, of the ilk, you know, um, may I not attain enlightenment until this is created. May I not attain enlightenment until this happens. And so what, to make a very long story short, what fundamentally happened over a period of innumerable kalpas, right? And a kalpa is, depending on, who you talk to, the shortest duration of a kalpa I've ever come across is 4,320,000,000 years. That's a lot of years. Over four or something innumerable kalpas, the, uh, the pre-Buddha Dharmakara just created vast oceans of merit. Um, and then that, and this is what we talked about in the program, eventually that merit um, transformed in a certain sense that spiritual potency, that energy transformed into his awakening, that transformed Dharmakara into the Buddha Amitabha. And then what happens with that type of thing, and this is where it gets really um, profound, is the awareness of a, of a Buddha, um, that level of archetypal Buddha is such that it actually can create, you know, you, you create this kind of ultimate real estate. <laughs> you, you literally, it's the highest form of tuku where when you become a Buddha, you, you have allegedly the power to create these lands. Um, so fundamentally, again, it, it's hard to shrink wrap these things in short periods of time, but one way to look at this, even, even using just the analogy, don't take it too literally, but you know, E equals MC squared, right? Energy is just mass times the speed of light. 
using that as an analogy, don't take it literally, that, that mass and um, energy are interchangeable. And so using that as, a, as an analogy, this tremendous creation of enlightened potential, enlightened energy merit um, can actually bring about, uh, you know, kind of the conversion into so-called real estate. <laughs> this is what the Pure Land Sutras say. I, I'm not making this up. This is not my story. Um, if you read the literature, if you read the, especially the longer Pure Land Sutra, this is what that sutra is all about, you know, exactly how this particular pure land came about. And so to really understand this, this is not such a simple thing. That's why it, it's, it's relatively unbelievable for many in the West. It's like, are you kidding me? Well, this is where you have to really understand karma, merit specifically. This is what Bob and I are going to be talking about. And, and this has different meanings across the vehicle. So the Hinayana merit is different from the Mahayana merit is different from the Vajrayana merit. And yet all these work together in really quite powerful magical ways that in the Pure Land teachings can be of such power that literally an entire dimension can be created. Um, and so, you know, short of just reiterating what I'm gonna be talking about during the weekend program, that's probably the best I can do with that in this short little bullet point. It's out there. I mean, you know, when I first read this stuff, it was like, are you kidding me? I kept reading it. I read everything I could find. I started talking to the teachers, especially, you know, because most of this comes from, um, you know, Korean, Vietnamese, Japanese schools. I'm not that familiar with those schools. I was more interested in finding the Indian roots through Vasubandhu Asanga, and then particular the Tibetan roots. And so kind of supplementing all these strands from all these different arenas, slowly, slowly, it started to make more and more sense to me um, because I was able to refine my understanding of this, of this kind of um, spiritual energy, the spiritual power that's also associated with blessing. It, it, you know, there's, there is a type of uh, energetic transmission that takes place when we work with this thing called merit. So just for the purposes of time, um, probably the best I can do with that in the short period that we have here. So it's out there. Um, but it's also kind of a big deal to really understand. And the Pure Land teachings are all about this. I mean, this is the guts of them. So um, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> okay, everybody, I kind of got to run. I'm out of town. I got some commitments where I'm at. So um, thanks for joining us um, next week. You know, the usual, we're putting out a little weekly calendar now. We just started that this week. That'll be pinged up, I think, on, on Sunday night. When are, we, when are we actually doing that? Sunday night? Yeah, or Monday? Sunday. Sunday yeah. evening. And that will list everything that's coming up during the following week. But check out the link. Um, did you put up the link for the, the Pure Land thing? In the yeah, chat? I put it in twice. Awesome, man. Yeah, check out the link in the riff on that. Um, I'll be sending some stuff shortly to Manla, which will then be sent out to the people that are registering, including some liturgies and aspiration prayers and things like that. Um, so if this has any interest to you, it'd be great to have you guys in that program. It's pretty cool stuff. It's out there. But between now and next week, everybody, stay healthy, be happy, and uh, meet you in the Pure Land. Ciao.